Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you are joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, let me welcome you back. With the Biden administration now in office, Israel Policy Forum remains as committed as ever to our mission and our vision. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict consistent with Israel's security. To all of our supporters on today's call, thank you. For those who have not yet done so, I encourage you to make a contribution to Israel Policy Forum. To Israel Policy Forum. Your gift supports not just the Tuesday webinars, but also the weekly Koplo column, Israel Policy Pod, community programming, briefings for the Biden administration and the 117th Congress, and development of the next generation of leaders and policymakers. Last year, we were able to provide credible, nuanced analysis for tens of thousands of policymakers, community leaders, journalists, and interested individuals like you. Please help support this vital resource. Please visit israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving and make your gift today. Thank you. Now, on to today's program. The past four years have seen momentous developments in Israel, the Palestinian territories, and with American foreign policy. As New York Times Jerusalem Bureau Chief, David Halbfinger was witness to many of these important stories which continue to shape events on the ground in the Middle East and the Biden administration's approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Today, we're indeed fortunate to be joined by David, who just returned from his assignment in Israel for a look back. David, thank you so much for joining us and welcome back to the States. Thank you, it's great to be with you. Could you please start by giving us a broad overview? What were the most interesting stories you got to cover for the Times and which ones were the most consequential? Uh -huh. um, so, uh, you know, I mean, like the, the big story of the last four years, obviously, was was um, the Trump administration. I mean, and it's 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 dealings with 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 Israel and the Palestinians. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it kind of it, it overtook everything um, in a lot of ways. It was not for nothing. It was the it was the one I think it was the one foreign policy arena where the Trump administration was really effective, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, but that really shaped, I mean, the, the direction of the conflict for a while. Um, we had a lot of stories to deal with. We had two big ones last year alone, the push for annexation at first, and then the pivot suddenly into normalization, all of which was just endlessly um, fascinating to, to cover in all its dimensions, you know, um, uh, the fight um, over annexation, the strategies on on the various sides, the way it divided the White House, the Palestinians and their response, um, and then the rabbit out of the hat for Netanyahu, um, and then you know just uh, looking doing stories like we looked at what normalization meant for Arab citizens of Israel it was just really interesting to to dig into. All of this just was you know the the conflict had in many ways been so stable for so long, you could argue it was just in a rut and going nowhere um, and creeping along. But this really, you know, say what you will, it, it shook things up and, and it made for a whole lot of really interesting new angles to explore. So that was like the, the biggest story. Then, you know, you know, I mean, like if you've been following, you know, Netanyahu and his corruption scandal, these endless elections, you know, the Groundhog Day of, of Israeli politics, um, which was both, I mean, for, I'm, not, I'm a bit of a political junkie, not the biggest, but, um, you know, I like a good race. Um, I, I think I had enough <laughs> of those races, but, you know, we covered, the, we covered the first one sort of really like day to day, like it was an American style, you know, race. We backed off a little bit for the second, we backed off even more for the third. And now I really, I'm glad to be getting out of there for the fourth, fifth, and who knows how many. Um, but, you know, all of this was really interesting. Um, I, I think um, what what you you talk about consequential I and mean, who's to say what's going to be consequential, you know, a, a year or two from now. I, I 
I found um, like most kind of rewarding uh, the chances I got that were not necessarily on those dominant stories to, to burrow into Israeli society and Palestinian society and, um, you know, write, uh, they asked me just a few months after arriving, what's it really like to live in Jerusalem right now? And it was around the time of the declaration, the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Um, and it was, I found it, I, I was, it was easy in a way to write because I was new there and I was kind of feeling the tension. And so I got to do something like that. Um, I did stories about Ethiopian Israelis and their problems, police brutality, a, a number of stories about Israeli Arabs and their political awakening and new assertiveness, which is continuing to, to grow and become more and more interesting and potentially pivotal. Um, you know, the secular religious divide, um, the, the so-called tribes of Israel and how they break down. Um, and that's just on the Israeli side. We could talk some more about the Palestinian side. Um, lots of things going on in Gaza. I mean, but, you know, the great thing about this job is, is you know, even a little story, like a little nothing you just might have not done um, can really have a, a, an impact. Um, I'll, I'll mention too, one was last year at the beginning of Corona, I spotted a photo on Twitter, I think, of, 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 a, of a Mogan Davida Dome ambulance um, and the two EMTs who drove it taking a prayer break, the Jew facing Jerusalem and the Muslim facing Mecca on his prayer rug, the, the Jew in Tefillin. And this thing just took off, but it was just like a moment. And these are two guys who work together and wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if that were like, you know, scalable. Um, uh, and then another one is just last year, um, around the same time, actually, uh, I, I was on a Zoom call like this one um, just sort of lurking and watching as some young people in Gaza were reaching out for support um, in a peacemaking venture with a group of Israelis and a bunch of internationals from America and elsewhere, just, you know, people who believe in making peace. Um, and for this, he was put in jail, like within a couple of days and stayed there for around six months. And because we wrote that story and continued to cover that story, I think that had a lot to do with him, you know, building up enough pressure to, to get him eventually out. Um, but uh, there, there are a lot of things like that, it, it, you know, but really history will tell what's, what's consequential. Thank you. I like journalism being a force for good. Um, yeah. You wrote a profile of Ambassador David Friedman earlier this month, just before the Trump administration left office. For those who have not yet had an opportunity to read the piece or who need a refresher, could you please explain how Friedman viewed his role in setting the last administration's Israel policy and how others inside and outside the government perceived his influence? Yeah, no, I think he, look, he, he, he was a, a guy of strong views. Some would say an ideologue. I think most would say, <laughs> um, uh, you know, he had, he had, his views were known were very controversial when he was appointed and confirmed. Um, and, you know, there was some talk that he was going to moderate those views. I think really he mostly moderated his messaging and even then not as much as, as one would sort of expect, I think, um, from, from an ambassador. But the, the uh, you know, he pursued an agenda. And, um, I mean, Jared Kushner told us uh, for that story, you know, um, that Friedman was extremely important in coming up with the list and getting and knocking them, you know, setting them up and knocking them down basically. And really at the end of it, there was very little left they hadn't accomplished that they wanted to accomplish. I mean, and this, you know, this is, it, it does stand in contrast to much of the administration's foreign policy elsewhere in the world. Um, but here, you know, they're kind of pushing it on an open door with the, the Netanyahu administration. I mean, it, it, there are a number of instances in which Friedman kind of outflanked Netanyahu from the right. Um, and, you know, uh, it, 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 it explains why they got so much done um, and why the administration was so uh, overwhelmingly supported by Israelis. I mean, even people, um, you know, in the center and left appreciated the move on Jerusalem and appreciated uh, the recognition in the, uh, of the capital and the move of the embassy and a lot more. They appreciated the Golan, um, you know, but certainly the supporters of the settlements, the settlers themselves, you know, they got everything they ever wanted and more out of the Trump administration. 
You closely followed the involvement of the UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process, Nikolai Mladenov, who, like Friedman, is leaving the scene. In fact, I think he's already returned to Bulgaria. He finished his service earlier this month. um, And Mladenov was the subject of another of your recent articles. Uh, Could you please tell us a bit more about Mladenov's role and what made him, in your words, someone who, quote unquote, earned the respect of everyone he worked with? Yeah, no, I mean, um, it, it was striking that um, the, the people who served in that role before him, really, you couldn't name any of them. Um, but uh, but he, he was a player. I mean, they, they, you couldn't name any of them because um, they basically, as I understand it, um, did a lot of criticizing Israel um, and, and not much more. Um, and, and he took a different tack. You know, he really got his hands dirty. He got involved. I think he established um, a, a relationship with people on all sides. I mean, one of the one of the things that made it literally true about him was, you know, people in Hamas, uh, pe- um, people in the Israeli government, the Palestinian Authority, um, people on all sides of this conflict had respect for him and quite a bit. And while they didn't all love everything he did, um, you know, they continued to work with him. They saw him as a resource. And look, he, you know, he, I think he approached his job as, as saying, you know, I'm not going to solve the conflict, but what can I do to make things better? And, and for him, much of, the, much of his energy was spent mitigating conditions in, in between Gaza and Israel, um, trying to force Israel to, um, you know, alleviate its, 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 its lock on Gaza to, to enough to, to, to avert the humanitarian crisis that was always on the edge. Um, to allow money to flow into Gaza, um, it, you know, and um, and to bring in first the Qataris, but also, um, uh, you, you know, just the UN's own um, diplomatic efforts to, um, to 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 broker, you know, kind of understanding that would keep the place from exploding into yet another war. Because as he said, you know, another war. I mean, it was difficult enough after the 2014 war to get donor nations to agree to spend anything to rebuild Gaza. They eventually got much of that work done but you know uh, to do that to, to erupt into another war he was afraid you know would, would there, there would just be no money um left uh and no interest um in, in rebuilding Gaza and then what you know uh, but he was I mean he practiced what he called preventive diplomacy and I think he did a lot of preventing it's hard it's it's off you know how do you prove a negative um about what didn't happen but you know everybody who was involved with him saw what he was accomplishing. He was also early to see the opportunity um, with normalization as a as a, a kind of rescue from annexation and did a lot of, of you know, uh, building support for that um, in, in, to some degree in concert with the Trump administration, which is very interesting. Mladenov's tenure included periods in which U.S.-Palestinian and Israeli-Palestinian relations approached some of their lowest points since the Second Intifada especially last summer when West Bank annexation appeared imminent. You worked on a story about the isolation of Palestinian security forces after the PA cut off coordination with Israel. Uh, Could you please tell us a little bit more about what it was like to cover that period? Yeah, that that story was one of my favorites in the entire time I was there because, um, you know, if you think about um, what annexation represented to the Palestinians, it was basically, you know, telling them that, you know, this state that you thought you were building, yeah, forget about it. And who had given the most um, emotionally to the idea of building, to the cause of building a state? Who, I mean, you know, if you think about the Palestinian security officers, the, the big thing that I'd always heard of um, about them was, you know, that they were seen, they were often seen as, as much as they were laying down their lives and, you know, putting themselves on the line, just as any other law enforcement officers anywhere. And um, you know, national security officers do um, in fighting crime. The, these guys are also putting themselves at odds with their own people in many cases. I mean, you know, look, say what you will. In 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 many cases, attackers who, who you know against Israel are seen as heroes, um, and these guys were preventing attacks. Um, not only that, but you know, when the Israeli military rolls in to do a raid, security coordination means that. The Israelis coordinate the exit from the area of the Palestinian security people. 
so that there isn't a conflict. So that they and, and they have to do that carefully. It's choreographed so that they're not seen walking away from running away from the Israeli jeeps and so on. So it, you know that puts them in a really bad spot with their own people, and they've endured that for a long time. And they've done so, as they told us, because they believe they were building something. You know, they believed it was all, they, they could accept that if it was for the cause of a state. But take away the, the prospect of state, and what have they been doing with their lives? It's a really tough, um, tough feeling to, to, to draw out of people. But, you know, we found, we found a, a, a Palestinian um, police office commander who had rescued an Israeli motorist who made a wrong turn into a, a West Bank neighborhood just outside Jerusalem. And when the Israelis rolled up, they shot him in a leg, you know, um, at, at a, whether it was out of confusion or not, we don't really know. Um, and all he got for his trouble was an apology. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that they, you know, they put up with. And he went back to work, you know, as soon as he, as soon as he healed. Um, but now he's being told, like, well, what was all this for? It's tough. Um, before I ask another question, I just want to remind our audience, and we do already have some in the queue, but keep those questions coming, folks. So if you have one, please type it in the Q&A. Uh, David, since the election of Joe Biden, you've reported on the optimism among Palestinian leaders about the prospects for the Biden presidency. Could you please explain the contrast between the situation now and the situation last summer and what your sense is of the Palestinian public's view on this? So um, I haven't done a whole lot of talking to the Palestinian public. I'm a little skeptical that they think that things are going to be all that different. Um, I haven't, I, you know, I haven't done reporting on what ordinary Palestinians think Joe Biden will do. I, I know I can tell you without having talked to them that there's certain that it'll be better than it was under Trump. But, you know, is there a whole lot of hope that things will be very different? I don't know. I do know that the Palestinian leadership is thrilled. They were dying for Biden to win. They are thrilled that he did. Um, and, you know, now it's a matter of what can they get right? and what do they have to do to get what they can get? You know, they'd like to see everything rolled back. They're not going to get everything rolled back. We know, for example, that the embassy is not going anywhere. Um, the, you know, the, the, the recognition of the capital is not, not going to be undone. Um, but, you know, other things require different degrees of lifting in Washington to get done. I mean, you know, um, and uh, will require the expenditure of different kinds of capital with Israel, for example, if, if, if the United States wants to open a we go back to the way things were with the consulate in Jerusalem. They have to get Israel's, um, you know, a- approval of that if it's going to be an Israeli territory. Um, David Friedman was in the Knesset, are, uh, sort of helpfully suggesting to the Israelis that they not go along with that as one of his last acts. Um, interesting. Uh, uh, but, the, you know, the Palestinians would like to get what they can get. I think the Biden administration will see how they play it, but, it's a kind of similar dynamic to Iran in that, you know, they've got this leverage that was accumulated versus the Palestinians. And, you know, while they want to turn over a new page in that relationship, to some degree, go back to the way things were, I think they also don't want to just let that leverage go for nothing. So we'll see. Your work for the Times in Jerusalem coincided with an unprecedented period of political instability in Israel, as you alluded to. Israel's headed now the fourth elections in two years and the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. With Israel now undertaking an ambitious vaccination effort in the lead up to the next election, how is Israel now faring with its dual public health and political crises? Yeah, it's really um, a fascinating question. I mean, like, as you say, um, like the the pandemic really kind of peeled back um, the curtain if if it had been even closed on um, on some of those problems. You know the the story all year um, when things were good at the beginning, they were not so good in places like B'nai Brock. They were they were terrible. You know, then it got bad all over. And then it, you know, then then the, the more recently they've and solving the problem with vaccines um, and sort of setting the pace in a lot of ways because of the deals they've made. Um, but, you know, the numbers are still pretty bad across the country. Um, you know, it, it did expose those, those a lot of the tensions between the Haredi community and the rest of Israel, um, you know, just because uh, you go into Haredi neighborhoods and 
people wouldn't be keep they'd be in their yeshivas studying um, without. I mean, to some degree, there was there was following it at, at certain points, but it's, it basically went by the wayside. And now you have protests in the street where they're setting buses on fire um, and and clashing with the police. Um, you know, uh, in these really ugly um, scenes, uh, which you know, uh, I, we just don't know where it's leading. And, and and why is all this allowed to happen? I mean, like the the, the cynical uh, observers of Israeli politics, who I guess I'm, I've become one. Uh, would tell you that it's because of the control that the the, the ultra orthodox exert over Netanyahu. I mean, he he can't he can't get elected without them. At least um, not in the the calculus that you know that we've seen in recent years. Um, and as a result, like you know, the prime minister of Israel was basically going hat in hand to the the grandson of Kanievsky, um, seeking his you know cooperation. Uh, would you could you please? Um, you know, and it, it's a pretty untoward thing to have to see, but, you know, every, and everybody else is saying, wait, wait, <laughs> you know, how is this, how's that fair? How's that right? Um, so it's, it's just adding to the acrimony and animosity between different sectors of society, um, divisions, which, you know, Netanyahu himself has exploited for a long time. And now we see there's a new ad that went up this morning for his latest campaign. Bibi's promoting unity, you know? as if he's the great unifier. So, I mean, I guess he always knows what needs to be said, um, but there you have it. Um, so, I, I mean, I have to say, like, the vaccine effort is really impressive. In fact, I'll confess, a bunch of foreign journalists, including myself, got the first shot last Sunday. Now i got to find a second one back here. We'll see if I can do that. So I don't know which country's in worse shape. Mm. Um. Reflecting on your three and a half years in Israel, could you share your observations and insights regarding the relationship between American Jews and Israel? Oh wow, that's a long that's a that's a short question with a very, very long answer. I would say though that um, you know it we're, we're, I always find wherever I am as a reporter, I wish I were somebody else somewhere else sometimes. And um, you know going to Israel in twenty in mid 2017, I kind of in the back of my mind was like grateful to get away from the chaos of the Trump administration. And it's true that, you know, as an American, you know, I, I was able to like contain my doom scrolling to just like, I'd wake up and, you know, whenever in the morning, scroll through, it might take five minutes if it was a slow news day, it might take 45 minutes if it were another particularly hellacious set of headlines. But, you know, that would be like, oh my God, what, what was happening to my country? And then I, you know, put that aside and go immerse myself in others, other people's problems for the rest of my day. And so I had the emotional, emotional detachment and distance that I needed, I think, to do a good job as a reporter. I, 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 I have all credit and praise to people who are actually covering the Trump administration as Americans. It's a tough thing to do, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, but being in Israel, um, I mean, on the other hand, you know, it was it was as emotionally easy as it easier as it was to be there at times, you know, there were times like with Charlottesville and Pittsburgh and Poway, anti-Semitism became such a powerful topic. Um, it, it, I was, I was removed from that in a way. I mean, I, I did some stories on it, but I found that like Israelis couldn't really understand what American Jews were going through. It was a bit of a reversal. And, you know, and it made their, the Israelis overwhelming support for Trump, you know, just another thing that was aggravating the relationship between these two, you know, dysfunctional siblings of the Jewish people. Um, you know, I mean, and if you think about it, like, uh, you know, from, from Charlottesville uh, to the, the Trump administration's, you know, focus on the Mideast and pursuing a very, you know, Israeli aligned foreign policy, you know, I, I sometimes ask myself, who, whose foreign policy is this again? Um, right up to seeing the Israeli flag alongside the Confederate stars and bars on January 6th in that insurrection, you know, um, like it was only that, think about it, it was only that on January 6th that made some Israeli um, uh, political figures sort of wake, wake up and admit that maybe just maybe the Trump administration wasn't so good for the Jews. It was really... Um, fascinating to be look over there watching all this play out covering it from that 
angle. Um, it was, I often felt like I was looking through a cracked mirror, you know, these two countries, the parallels between the two leaders, the, 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 the sort of drift into nationalism, ultra, you know, the, the right wing stuff um, in, in Israel, you know, and, and now what? Um, I mean, like, I, I do wonder, you know, how is Netanyahu going to metaf- metamorphosize, right? He's, he's, like I said, he's projecting unity um, as if he weren't the one trying to blow things apart. Um, and, and, and at the same time, he, he, the, the, I, I feel like he's a bit dithering over where, whether to adopt a very tough and confrontational posture vis-a-vis Biden, which he's doing sort of through anonymous leaks so far, um, to paint Biden as another Obama, or you know, whether it might not be the best time to pick a fight with Washington. Um, and certainly, you know, as Biden gets going with the Democratic Congress, um, you know, uh, he seems to be making some pretty strong moves so far. Um, and, you know, you, you just wonder how the dynamic and the power, the power balance will shift. So pass the popcorn. I can't wait to watch. You know? Even though your time in Jerusalem has come to an end, I understand you still have a couple of stories in the works any chance of you giving us a sneak preview? Sorry, no. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Got to get that done. All right. I guess we'll have to wait and Hopefully read it on the paper like everybody else. Um, but let me now get to We have a, a bunch of audience questions, so I'll just turn right to them. Um, Gerald Rothstein asks, considering developments during your assignment in Israel, do you think that the likelihood of a lasting agreement with the Palestinians has changed? If so, in what direction has it changed? Well, um, I, you know, look, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think that we've seen the contours of, of the plan that will be the, you know, the, the, the deal between these two sides. I don't think the Trump administration did that. But I, I, I do think there's something to be said for the idea that it really did shake things up. I think the relief on the part of the Palestinians, you know, that Trump is gone, um, has certainly set in motion some efforts on their part to, to give a, a different look, to show that they are, you know, in the market uh, as, you know, new and improved. I mean, they're, you know, what, what people, what the critics call pay to slay, the, the, the welfare payments to people who are in prison and their families. Um, the Palestinians uh, have been for a couple of months now working on a change to that, that would, you know, uh, reform it and, and to, to the satisfaction of the United States and, uh, and Congress, at least in theory. Maybe they'll actually go ahead and, and, and complete that process. Um, they're talking now again about elections. I mean, one of the big impediments that Mladenov of the UN talked about as, as, a, as, a, as a, an obstacle to any kind of peace was the, div- I mean, it was the, the the bifurcation of the Palestinian people and their leader and their you know the political divide between the West Bank and Gaza? You have two two de facto, de facto government in Gaza under Hamas and the PA in the West Bank. And how can you negotiate with Israel? And not to mention the fact that Hamas is like you know on the terror list and everything. You can't even talk to them. Um, so you know now the Palestinians are talking about holding elections. I mean it's not the first time they've talked about holding elections. Um, and there's plenty of people who, you know, doubt that they'll ever come to pass. But, you know, if that's a prerequisite to actually getting something done and they're talking about trying to, to, to deal with that. And I, and I, I've, I've talked to some Palestinian officials who think that this time it actually might happen, that they see the need, um, you know, uh, and that maybe there'll be some way to, to figure out how to work Hamas into the PLO, um, you know, as a way to kind of bring them all together. Um, it, it could change things. And, you know, at this point, I think, um, you know, anything to shake things up on the Palestinian side, you know, at least has the promise of, of an improvement. But look, you know, um, at the same time, we have to be realistic. What is Netanyahu doing? What is, what is the Israeli right doing? You know, how, how, how right-wing is Israeli politics? Um, you know, um, the settlement process is, it, uh, the enterprise is continuing, arguably accelerating. Um, you know, facts on the ground have never stopped to be made, um, and they're you know they're they're picking up pace. Some of these some of the things that are happening in Givat Hamatos, potentially in E1, we've all re- heard for years and written for years that these would be you know deal break like you know 
catastrophic, fatal, you know, the final nail in the coffin. I don't know how many nails in the coffin um, there are. Maybe there's room for more nails. But, um, you know, these are all not good. Um, I have to say, though, that, you know, one of the things that I find interesting and I have yet, yet to get around to reporting on is, I mean, the spoilers of Oslo were the religious extremists on each side. But one of the things I picked up on in um, in, in recent uh, months of reporting that I do hope to come around to uh, in the future is um, just the, the, the nascent um, efforts of people on both sides to actually try to at least start talking about peace. You know, I, I met a, a, a right-wing settler rabbi who's, you know, actually trying to, you know, um, work on this and, and build some support. And I, I find that kind of thing, while tiny, you know, fledgling, um, you know, it, not even worthy of like serious consideration yet, still really interesting. And that, it's that kind of thing that can give you hope if you're in the market for hope. Jonathan Broder, hi, John, um, asks, having witnessed the collapse of the Blue and White Party, the continuing marginalization of the Israeli left, and the deep division between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, how would you assess the chances for an eventual two-state solution? <laughs> yeah, I think I'll refer to my last answer. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, 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 um, you know, it's going to take like a harmonic convergence and, you know, like a lottery winning ticket and a few other unlikely things, but, um, and maybe it'll never happen. Maybe it'll just get too hot in 50 years and everybody will have to go somewhere else. But, um, you know, but look, like these populations are not going anywhere. I mean, like, you know, um, the, the most poignant thing I heard said in the last six months was by the late Saab Arakat, you know, after normalization happened, which was like devastating to the Palestinian strategy, all he could really muster was, well, we're still here. And he's right, you know? I mean, it's not an argument, it's not a strategy, but it's a powerful statement, it's profound. And there's a few million people in the West Bank and there's a couple more million people in Gaza. And, you know, uh, unless you're gonna put them on trucks, you're gonna have to deal with them. Your settlements are gonna grow, their, their families are overflowing. You know, you, you, at some point, you know, it, it, it's going to, push is going to come to shove. Either they will explode and you'll have another wave of violence, um, you know, or I don't know what, but it, it's not something that can just be ignored forever. Um, and I think, you know, e even people on the right wing realize that. So, you know, I, I do think it's a matter of getting, a, getting away with what they can get away with while they can. You know, the last four years are really good for them. But we'll see what happens when the United States actually um, takes a different tack. And, you know, it may not be on the top of Joe Biden's list, but, um, you know, if the United States is, is saying something else, you know, that's that's certainly at least headwinds. Right. So um, we'll see how it changes. And this is sort of a follow up from Peter Alter. Some say that the Trump Friedman, that Trump Friedman proved that being hard-nosed and tough with the Palestinians is the way to go and that coddling them just hasn't worked and won't work. Do you agree or disagree with that assessment and why? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, it, 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 uh, did it work? I mean, you know, uh, their, their plan went nowhere. Um, you know, the, 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 they never got the Palestinians to talk to them. The only Palestinians they talked to them were extremely marginalized, um, you know, uh, people who were basically seen as Palestinian Uncle Toms. Um, nobody was talking to them publicly. Um, if there was any conversation happening, it was like, you know, back channels through other diplomats. Um, so I, I don't know how much they really got done. I do think that, you know, they, they beat up the Palestinians. And, um, you know, as I said, they created some leverage that, could be exploited, um, but really, like you know, you could you could look at it another way. That um, you know, Abu Mazen. I, when I when I went to um, when I went to Israel um, in 2017, I was convinced that I was going to you know be there for an epochal change of leadership. You know, uh, with Netanyahu and his corruption trial coming around, I figured maybe I'd get to see a new um, a new Israeli prime minister with Abu Mazen in his 80s and ill. 
I thought, you know, there's a good chance there'd be a change of leadership on that side. And then, you know, new leaders, we'd have peace, right? Didn't come to pass, but really Abbas just outlasted Trump. I mean, that's, he can, he, he can put that on his tombstone, you know, I mean, that would probably be enough. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, so here's a question to ask you to reflect a bit. Mark Pinkasovi asks, what did you learn about Israel and about the Palestinians that you didn't know three and a half years ago? You probably could write a whole book on that. But oh, I mean, everything. I, look, I, I was like, I, I had to have been one of the least prepared um, people to take this job. I, I took it, I accepted the job on July 14th. I was on a plane to Israel on August 15th. And, you know, I, I had no time to prepare. I had I had not studied you know the Middle East in college, um, you know I had Hebrew school, um, <laughs> but that was about it. Um, so and I you know I read about it all those years, but like I I, I was not a student of the conflict, so I kind of had to learn on the fly. So everything everything I I know now I learned while while covering up. You know what I'm, I'm trying to think of like what was most surprising. Um, what is, I, I would say what's not, what's surprising is how similar. Um, the, the, the people on both sides are. And, you know, I find them, I find both peoples to be extremely warm and hospitable and, you know, to some degree tough on the outside, um, you know, like the cliche about Israelis, um, but really warm and intelligent and, you know, resourceful, um, able to put up with a lot. They love the land, you know, the family oriented, um, I, I would say that on the Israeli side, I think I was fascinated to learn about Mizrahim and Mizrahi culture. And I, you know, I, I again came to that largely from a political bent. I was curious to know um, about these people who were so many of Netanyahu's supporters and so loyal to him, you know, and it reminded me very much of, of what I'd seen in the United States in the, in the Trump base. I did a couple of stories along those lines that were pretty interesting. But, um, you know, I, I was really fascinated to learn about their very different history and and why, you know, for example, they share kind of a different set of values from the liberal American, you know, Ashkenazi-derived um, uh, jury that I come from. So that was really, that was eye-opening. Stephen Greenfield asks, do you think that the Abraham Accords will endure since the leaders of the participating Arab countries have not been democratically elected? In the short term, will these accords help defuse the boycott against Israel? Well, I, I don't know if they'll endure. I, I, I think um, they're going to be really interesting to, to see how they are tested, right? How much they are, how much they really lead to um, in the way of, you know, economic and social ties and tourism, and when we can have tourism again. I mean, it's, it, we're, everything's kind of on hold now, you know. I mean, until we can really travel in a big way. I mean, right now, waves of Israelis went to Dubai and I think brought a lot of COVID with them and brought a lot of it back, from what I've heard. Um, so, you know, until those, those uh, lines of, of communication and travel can really um, blossom, we're not going to see this, but I, 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 I do wonder, you know, what happens when some Emiratis come to Ben Gurion Airport and really get it going over from Israeli security. You know, um, uh, what happens when they venture out from like the business, uh, you know, conference rooms of, uh, of, of deal making in Tel Aviv, um, and they go look and see how Arab Israelis are, are are living, or they go into the West Bank and they see what occupation is like. You know, what happens when they cross a checkpoint like I did not too long ago and they're made to drop their pants, um, you know, by some like overzealous uh, Israeli security officer. So, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that how 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 deeply these 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 deals um, knit these countries together. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical, I think I have to say, in, you know, in, in, in the long term, but but. I don't know. I mean, there's certainly a desire on the part of the Gulfies and Israel to, to really afford, you know, bring this together. There's certainly, a, a, I think, a, a, a natural bond between Morocco and Israel. I don't know about Sudan. 
Um, although I'm sure Israel will find ways to offer its services and solving things like water shortages and so on. But, you know, you, you raise a really good point. Like, and this is, a, again, going to be a test for Israel and its democratic values, right? You know, I mean, on the other hand, you know, the, the Americans have, have uh, you know, have, have not exactly, you know, uh, been so consistent in doing business only with people who reflect their values. So there's relative, a lot of real politique involved. And I don't think Israel's going to look, look, look down the noses at any potential friends in the Arab world, nor should they really. So, um, you know, but, but how much it can, it, how deep it can get and how, um, you know, how much it will um, allow them to continue to kind of keep the Palestinian issue, you know, out of the frame. I'll be curious to watch that. And if I could, just ask a quick follow-up on this point of normalization versus annexation. If you remember, um, that was the precept for the UAE as far as uh, finalizing normalization of Israel, that that Israel would abandon um, plans to annex the West Bank, which, as we know, looked like a very real prospect last summer. And yet, and you alluded to this earlier about Givat Hamatos, possibly E1, there are um, there's proposed legislation in the Knesset to retroactively recognize illegal outposts uh, and consider them settlements. So there are things happening on the ground regarding annexation. I call it, you know, some people call it creeping. Someone yesterday, you know, you called it galloping, um, <laughs> galloping annexation. You know, de jure maybe not, but de facto. So how, in your opinion, how does this affect? how the Emiratis are looking at normalization. In other words, they got, clearly a lot is advancing between the business communities, high tech, you name it, a lot of tourism, um, at least till Ben-Gurion had to shut down. Uh, But in any event, do you think that the Emiratis are going to continue to press Israel on the annexation issue? Or do you think they've sort of moved past it because they're happy with what normalization is bringing them? Look, I mean, I, I think you know uh, life is long here. I mean, we're only just beginning. We're only a few months a few months into this. We haven't even opened real embassies or anything yet. Um, but you know, this is this is one of the things that Mladenov said to me. You know, and I, and and it seems it seems persuasive, right? Like if you're the Palestinians, you know, you know, maybe you'd like the solidarity that you've had all those years. Although I'm not sure it's really gotten you much. Um, but you know, if if these normalization deals are going to happen, if the Emiratis are going to have an embassy in wherever it's going to be, I assume Tel Aviv, not Jerusalem, um, uh, but I could be wrong. Um, but wouldn't you want them there, arguing on your behalf? And you know, doesn't the the existence of this tie and this treaty, you know, amount to an investment that Israel is not going to want to damage or risk? And so doesn't that create leverage for the Palestinians working alongside the Emiratis? It's, it's all very interesting. It's a new world, really, um, in diplomacy. Um, and, you know, and I think it's going to be one of the most exciting things to cover for my successor. We'll wait and see. Um, our own Michael Kaplow uh, asks about Netanyahu and his political style. He's often spoken of as an American-style politician. Does that strike you as accurate? Uh, I don't think, I mean, he's American in the sense that he can reinvent himself, right? Like, you know, but I don't don't even think Americans can reinvent themselves more than once or twice. Um, No, I I mean, but look, he's got great English. He's he's as American as as anybody else who grew up in in, in an American high school. Um, And that's one of the things that, as Michael knows, is one of Bibi's great, calling cards to his own people. You know, the idea that, oh, I can talk American better than the Americans. Um, but, you know, there's some, I mean, the context is totally different. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm never, I, 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 I never stop being amazed at how, like, Israelis can see, the Israeli voters can be sucker, you know, suckers for schmaltz and for what I find to be, like, really kind of syrupy or even, like, kind of, um, you know, I mean, I, I find some of the political arguments and 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 post, postures taken to be almost insulting to one's intelligence. I mean, you know, again, I haven't been in the United States for a while, so it's 
it's, it's it, you can maybe do some whataboutism to me about that, but it, 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 um, I mean, you know, Netanyahu really can, I mean, he's so skilled at, 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 at tailoring his message to the moment, to his needs, to what he's trying to accomplish. And there's also, there's also something else that I would bring up about Israeli politics that I, I never experienced in the United States. Um, and I've, I've been struck with this from the very beginning. There's a, you know, I think it has to do with the the, the, the news um, ecosystem in in Israel, and this, you know, and it's it, it dates back to when Israel was always like you know uh, under attack of one kind or another. They have these hourly radio updates. Everybody's got the radio on. If you're in a taxi, a cab, uh, you know, a, a, a private car, an office, um, a lot of stores, the radio is always on. People are constantly checking their apps, you know, their Ynet and so on. Um, they're, they're junkies for the news. There's like, you know, they're always, you have to then turn, tune into the TV at night. Um, and, you know, there's something about the way Netanyahu in particular exploits that news cycle. I, I like to think of it as like, um, you know, when you do slow motion TV, uh, slow motion photography, you're doing all these extra frames per second. And in a way, that's the kind of effect that, that all this news coverage, constant news coverage, has Netanyahu will leak an idea, you know, um, through some intermediary of some outrageous thing that he's going to do, you know, then the, the you know, people will uh, echo it, the left will attack it, the colonists on either sides will debate it, you know, um, and suddenly, you know, over a period of a couple of days, the whole idea is normalized to the point where everybody's just accepting that it's going to happen. And then it happens. And it's like, okay, well, that happened too. And it's like, he gets away with everything. And, you know, in a way that, you know, at least I remember in American politics, things blew up a lot bigger. Now, it's a different technique from Trump's. Trump creates his own kind of constant, you know, created, I should say, his own kind of constant wearing down of the news cycle or replacing one story with the next. But for Netanyahu, he just kind of exploits Israelis, you know, insatiable appetite for news and analysis and interpretation, you know, like, Everybody's got an opinion. They're all being heard. And, but, you know, but after a day or two, you're like, oh, yeah, I know about that. Next, move on. You know, it's just, uh, it's a different, it's, it's, he can have that different style, but it's a very different context. Uh, pivoting to a slightly different but interesting question, I think. Joanne Mort asks, as a reporter living in Jerusalem, what was your takeaway regarding the daily life of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, especially among the intelligentsia and the artistic sector that remains there? Um, so, you know, I, I didn't get into all those worlds as much as I would have liked. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I, I recently spent some time with a couple of people who were dealing with home demolitions in East Jerusalem. And, you know, like just the ordinary people who live there, um, it, it's just a, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a kind of awful um, level of uncertainty hanging over your head. You know, I mean, nobody has a permit on their homes. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, you just never know when um, the bulldozer are going to uh, bulldozers are going to come for you. You know, um, this is, this is not a, a, a addressing the question about the intelligentsia and everything. I mean, there's a, there's a vibrant life in East Jerusalem, uh, cultural life, intellectual life at the university and so on. Um, but I, you know, I, what I did spend time with recently was, was people in, in that, um, predicament. I watched, I watched a guy tear down his own home because he had to. And I watched another guy who had just spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars building a, a new set of homes for his, his grown sons to build their families. And, you know, that was torn down one morning. Um, you know, this is the kind of thing that it's very hard to imagine living with. You know, and in the case of the latter guy, I said, you know, what are you going to do? He said, yeah, I'll wait a few years and I'll do it again. He said, what, is, what else am I going to do? You know, they're not going to drive me away. This is my home, you know. So, you know, this is, this is hard to understand. Um, I mean, I think Israel expects that they do this kind of thing and, you know, eventually people get the idea and leave. And sometimes they do. But sometimes they don't. Uh, Alan Luxemburg asks, uh, in America, many of us believe that right-wing extremism is a grave threat to our democracy. How do you assess the ultimate significance of right-wing extremism in Israel? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think about this a lot. I mean, I alluded to values before, you know. Um, I, I, look, I, um, I wrote a little bit about last year um, during the elections when Otsma Yehudi, Jewish power, um, was trying to worm its way into, into the Knesset. These are the Kahanists. And um, Netanyahu made, I, would, I don't remember the, the particulars, but he, he, he made some kind of uh, agreement um, to sort of allow them to get in if they, you know, cross over. I think they made a, 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 a vote sharing agreement um, with a member of his coalition, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, the very idea at a time when we were dealing with white supremacy in the United States, that you'd have people <laughs> calling their calling their party Jewish power, you know, um, like, uh, I, I struggle to understand how that, you know, fits in with, again, my, um, my tradition of, uh, of, of what Jewish values are. And, um, what I've begun to learn, I think is, you know, there's, there's different aspects of the Jewish tradition, right. That people, um, cling to, and, you know, um, uh, I mean, this is really soft selling it, but, um, you know, I think for some people, peoplehood is everything, nationhood is everything, you know, um, and the nation comes before all. And, um, you know, uh, um, I mean, that, that leads to a very bleak and an extremist vision. And, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think... I don't think as a people, as a country, Israel, as a people, uh, as a, as a religion, the Jews have really kind of grappled with what it means to hold power as a nation. I mean, this is something that goes back to Yavna, you know, um, and beyond. Um, but, uh, you know, um, I, I've just started to read a little bit about, about the, the uses and, um, and the, the morals of exerting power. Um, uh, you know, in a Jewish way. And it's, it's, um, yeah, it's an area I'd like to learn more about, but I, I think it's an unsettled question and um, it's a scary one. And related to what we're just discussing, Dina Charnin um, asked the following, as an identifying American Jew, including being a member in a synagogue congregation, what was your personal journey from your original perception of Israel to what you experienced as the New York Times Israel reporter? And in what way, did or did not your personal identity and influences have an impact on your reporting? Well, I mean, I, I, I have to stipulate that they must've had some impact. I mean, like, you know, um, certainly I, I, I bring to it a, a tradition and a set of understandings about what Jewish values I thought were right. You know, I come from more of a tikkun alam branch. Um, but, uh, you know, I had a lot of learning to do, um, and I still do. Um, but in terms of like, you know, did that like color my lens? I, I, I don't really think that it did all that much. I, I came not having spent significant time in the region in Israel, excuse me, in Israel as a youngster, as a, as a, as a grown up. Um, I think I've been there for a total of like nine or 10 days in my life, um, up, up, up to taking the job. Um, you know, I had more questions. I had very few answers. I was very curious. Um, you know, uh, so it, it, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it it really affected me too much in my journalism. Um, I mean, I followed the story. I followed what interested me. Um, I followed what I found to be, you know, really compelling. Um, I think, um, you know, uh, I'm just trying to think of some of the other things that really spoke to me. I mean, look, you know, I guess I'm, you could probably see fingerprints of like the way I, I grew up in, in my interest in stories like uh, I did a piece about the alt-birthright, right? You know, the, the J Street um, experiment where they brought kids and showed them not just Israel, but the West Bank and the, and the occupation. Um, you know, uh, I, I, but, but look, I mean, like I was just as fascinated in, in the ultra Orthodox. I did a couple of really empathetic stories about what was happening in B'nai Brock, um, under Corona. 
you know, um, and that's not like my, that's not my experience at all. Um, and, and, and same thing on the Palestinian side, you know, I, I, um, uh, I'm just trying to think, um, and there's also one, one story, you know, that, that really, um, I don't know that you would attribute this to any kind of lens other than just a good journalist, you know, looking at what's going on. There were a couple of incidents in, in a Palestinian town next to Modine, Deir Kadis, uh, and Modine. There was like a, uh, an incident involving a wedding where some ultra Orthodox guys went to a Palestinian wedding right around the same time as a Palestinian from that town was accused of, of sexual assault of a little girl in, in the Israeli settlement. And, you know, we use this as a way into just looking as, at, how, at the kind of symbiosis and coexistence of these two towns and how they were being strained by these ugly events. Um, you know, I, I was just learning about all of this as I went, like I said, and, you know, um, I, I come away with it, having a feel for how Israel is and, you know, and, and, and where it's at and to some degree where I think it's going. Um, but, you know, it's a far cry from what I remember from when I was 15 years old and spent a week there, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, 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 look, I'm, I'm a Jew. I grew up saying all those prayers that talk about Israel and, and, and Yerushalayim, um, and saying prayers for peace, you know. Um, but it was, uh, look, what, it, it was, it was words and prayers, you know, and, and, um, and it's idealized and, and, you know, to some degree imaginative. And then you go and see what's really happening, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's eye-opening, embracing and all of that. But it was, I, I haven't talked about like, like as a family with three children uh, and a wife, um, you know, who really were experiencing this in a very rich and multi-layered textured way, um, you know, bringing all different aspects of society uh, into our lives. Um, you know, it, it was, it was a, look, I, I've been talking only about the problems. We've been talking about the conflict and the, you know, all the, all the trouble, but like, it was an amazing experience for us. Um, we, we can't wait to go back. My oldest child wants, didn't really want to come home. And she's still asking me, do we have to, you know, when can we get back on a plane? Um, you know, uh, so like, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. It was an opportunity for which I'll always be grateful. And, you know, um, like it's an amazing place, you know, you're at the top of the hour and we'll have to wrap soon, but I, is there any particular food you're going to miss especially? Well, I brought home, shh, don't tell customs, but I sneaked home about a kilo of Zatar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that might be like high on the list, but we won't miss it for a while. Um, I used uh, to regularly bring pita in my suitcase. Back from yeah. Time. Hot, hot, fresh pita. I actually got, I got, what is it called? Um, can't remember the name. Now. I, I did buy one of those round metal things that, you know, on, on um, I think on Lagba Omer, people bring them out to a campfire and, and bake fresh pita on, um, you know, over a fire. So I've tried to bring home as much as we could, um, but yeah, we're gonna miss, we're gonna miss really good, good Israeli food. And I know you can get some of it in New York when the restaurants are, are open again, but um, we'll, we'll miss a lot of that. Well, listen, thank you so much, David. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Once more, I wanna thank our supporters who were with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. And again, if you've not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all for joining us today. Once more, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your email inbox, and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, February 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Thank you very much, David, and take care, everybody. Thank you.